Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental nerds, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Laura and I discuss disaster recovery stories. We sit down with April Cummings, the Region 3 Director of Mitigation for FEMA, to talk about disaster recovery, COVID-19, and foster fails. And finally, Turkmenistan has a crater that's been on fire since 1971. It is known literally as the door to hell and was created when a natural gas field collapsed. (laughs) So that's something. And I think there's actually more than one of these. I think there's a few around the world, but that's the one that's been burning since 1971. Like they can't crazy. I don't even understand that. It's just on fire. So, wow. As always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Hit that music. Also, as a reminder, NAEP's Pennsylvania chapter, the PAEP, has a virtual conference with speaker sessions already in progress, but it's not too late to register as they are continuing throughout October. These are happening on Mondays and Fridays. They're one-hour sessions at 9 and noon. You can sign up for those at www.paep.org. And also, Nick and I love doing this show. And if you love it too and would like to help us keep doing it, we would love your help. We can't do it without our awesome sponsors. So please head on over to www.environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and check out the sponsor form for details. Now let's get to our segment. No, I worked on the the 2011 tornado disaster recovery effort in Alabama. Uh, That's where I met April, actually. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. Coast Guard's first and they just clear roads, rescue people. They actually have a, a numbering system. Like they'll say, hey, we searched this building. There were zero people here or there was like one person here and we took out or there's a dead person here so like they can just keep going and moving because they're trying to save people's lives and so they have to have a a way to mark the building so that you know that it's been checked so it's kind of crazy and a little morbid but yeah that's totally wild i can't imagine the day after something like that happens yeah rather be out checking flood levels right yes me too that's no fun really really scary stuff and the one we had was so there was like 190 tornado touchdowns, something crazy like that all wow. over Northern Alabama. The largest ones, there were like two F5s and the biggest one, literally a mile and a half wide. Like that what? doesn't make sense, but it was a <laughs> mile and a half wide. Wait, tell me more about this F5 stuff. I don't know what that is. So like there's category ratings for every, like just like hurricanes, you know, there's like category five hurricanes. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's, yeah. a, there's a rating system for tornadoes as well. And so it's a, a similar... I think it actually is literally one to five as well. So F5 is the worst and it's like 200 plus mile an hour winds. I think this one tapped out at 220, something like that. And with gusts like a 250. So it is a humongous, terrifying storm. And we've been talking big data quite a bit, but one of the craziest things about that disaster was seeing the post-disaster aerials. So you could mm-hmm. just see, it looked look like a little kid drew on a, <laughs> on a, right. a map where that tornado went. And it's a really... It was a really crazy storm. So the, the biggest one hit uh, Hackleburg, Alabama. So it did a couple of funny things. There was a guardrail in their baseball field and there's no guardrail within like miles of that mm-hmm. town. There's zero guardrails. They have no idea where it came from. The superintendent there. They have no idea is, where he came from. Right. Yeah. They have no idea where he came from. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you got me with that one. That's good. <laughs> um. So he decided to send the kids home because nobody, nobody knew how bad the storm was going to be. But he's like, you know, I'll just send them home, whatever, right? 
And the storm hit the high school, which is where they would have taken all the kids, right? And they would have put them in two places. One was the hallway and the other was the gym lockers, right? So the storm blows through. It picks the roof of the high school up, smashes it and dumps it straight into the hallway, right? Wow. So anybody in there would have been totally, totally would have died, right? They always then, took us in the hallway when we were kids. Yeah. We're supposed to go. Yes. It did not work. Yeah. Yeah. And in this case, it destroyed the entire hallway. It was just, you couldn't even open the door. The debris was all the way to the ceiling. Wow. Um, and the gym lockers, you opened the door to the gym lockers and you were outside. It literally pulled them out of the building. Wow. So they're <laughs> out in the middle of someone else's field. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, hey, where did these cinder blocks come from? Right. <laughs> But that same building, right? So total devastation, same building. There was a desk, like a school kid's desk with a huge trophy on it, like like a two-foot trophy. Didn't move. Yeah. Because storms are weird. It's just crazy. And, and the superintendent was in one of the other buildings and survived. And yeah. it's just, it's random. It's totally random. Really scary, crazy stuff. But yeah, I don't know. Did you ever actually have Live through one of those like hurricanes when you were in Florida? Hurricanes, yes. Tornadoes, not so much. We didn't get tornadoes like they do ripping through the prairie lands. Um, right. We do see water spouts every once in a while, which are super cool. <laughs> yeah. Is that, so is that like a tornado in the water or something? Oh, the water. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Pulls the water up. It's crazy. They look like dinosaur necks. <laughs> it's me anyway yeah I yeah no feels. no i totally yeah i'm right there i remember you. seeing two tornadoes when i lived in ohio when i was little but it's one of those like memories that i can't remember if it was real or if i was dreaming it or something yeah i feel like i was yeah. sitting on the porch and watching the sky turn green yeah it's super weird it's like a creepy it's like when you see it you're like something is wrong <laughs> yeah that's what it looks like yeah you're like i don't like this whatever's going on i don't like it yeah but i do remember being just afraid of them i mean the movie Twister. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I leaned on that heavily. Fear yeah. of us in the yeah. 80s and 90s. And then the drills, you know, when you're a kid and they're like, pretend there's a tornado coming, get in the hallway, yeah, yeah. put your yeah, head get in the hallway. Your yeah, yeah. hope you live for the next hour. You're like, pray. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. And yeah. And so I guess the difference between the two storms. So obviously hurricanes um, <laughs> and tornadoes are different. I don't know if you knew that. But the difference is basically like they, one of them has water. And that's worse. So that, that was what they were telling us. Like, this is bad. You know, what happened in Alabama was very, very bad. But there was no, there wasn't as much rain, you know, that they had to deal with afterwards. Because sometimes then you get mold and then you have a secondary problem, right? You have a, you can't just go fix what you have. You know, have to, maybe people can't go back to their homes at all because it's dangerous right. or more dangerous, I should say, because it's never great, but really scary. Yeah. Oh, and not to mention the Wizard of Oz. I mean, didn't that, Oh, yeah. <laughs> tornadoes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the very first one, you know. <laughs> but like, yeah, you know, yeah, you better be good, kids. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> tornado's going to get you. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, oh, hurricanes now. Hurricanes. I love hurricanes in Florida because you get hurricane days and they're, usually they're like the most beautiful days. The yeah, yeah. Blowing, it's <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The pressure has dropped and it's cooler than normal and mm-hmm. the sky is like this purple color. Oh, wow. It's pretty cool. But that is cool. You know, don't want to I mean, underplay the importance of being prepared for the real one. But yeah. often they were often they're just near misses. And but, you mm-hmm. know, they're also nature's cleaners. We just yeah. happen to be humans trying to be consistent and hold our way. I know. In there. 
this beachfront property is really great. Wait, what's that? You know, that's kind of yeah. <laughs> nature's like, it's time for this beachfront to change. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, no, <laughs> quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. It doesn't care yeah, at all. And we had like, so I'm in Raleigh, so I'm far enough away from the coast where we just get inundated with rain. And like every hurricane that goes through Louisiana, like just will dump on us a few days later. So it's just, just rain though at that point. But a couple of years ago, we had two hit us directly, Florence and Michael, and they both came through totally differently. Like one, Florence literally sat on Raleigh for three days, <laughs> three days, 40 mile an hour winds at that point. It wasn't quite a hurricane anymore, but enough to be, you know, that's enough to be like, wow, there's really something going on outside. It didn't do any real damage to our yard. Michael came through in like two hours and it broke our fence to pieces. Like it's just... <laughs> So weird how that stuff works. So, you know, it did way more damage and it was here way shorter. So I don't know. Just yeah. Wild. It goes back to the randomness. Yeah. I always felt like in Florida, people were like, Oh my gosh, you live in Florida, hurricanes. And I was like, Right, yeah, right. They hit North Carolina way more often than they hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a really random thing. Like we didn't have any for five years. And now since those two, we've had like we're getting all of them. Like they're all going through Louisiana. Like the Louisiana has been hit like yeah. 10 times in the last two years. It's crazy how that's happened. So I don't know. It's funny because there's like stuff that happens, like the storm itself is bad, right? And there's the recovery effort, which is what we're going to talk to April about today that happens afterwards, like almost immediately afterwards. There's the 24 hour, like we have to save everybody emergency area. And then there's the, the longer term recovery. So sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's, there's lots of sadness, but there's also some humor in it as well. The town of Cordova was also hit by these storms. Where is that? Uh, it's it's northern Alabama. It's, uh, so this is all in northern Alabama. All those tornadoes, uh, 2011. And it did some damage. It actually destroyed a bank there. It destroyed everything but the vault. So, <laughs> which is already kind of awesome, right? But they found out that a day later, some people found out that the vault was exposed and uh, <laughs> they tried to break into it. So the National <laughs> Guard had to set up armed guards in front of the gate until all the money was taken out of it. But uh, just a crazy thing. Like you never would have thought about it, but I love that the vault itself stood up. People. Well, I would hope the vault would stay. I mean, isn't it's that pretty, yeah. stuff in a vault in a safe? Yeah, but a brilliant. I mean, like a, a huge storm came through there, like a big tornado. And like, literally the only thing standing, like the only thing standing was the vault. Like I've got a picture of it and it's just the vault. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> there's no buildings. There's no walls. No, nothing else. <laughs> it's just that. <laughs> So pretty cool stuff. So I not, not all coming with their torches and their hammers, like thinking they're going to just bust into this thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the storm couldn't do it, but they can't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. That's a, that's a fun place to stop. So why don't we, uh, why don't we do that? All right. Let's get to our interview. Welcome back to EPR. Today, we are thrilled to welcome April Cummings, the region three director of mitigation at FEMA, which is pretty cool. But more importantly, she is one of the coolest people I know. So thank you for joining the show, April. I'm so excited to be here, mostly to see your face again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. And that's why I had to start here because I was going to ask you how your dogs are doing. But really, I just want to know if I can finally take Harold home with me because he is objectively the greatest dog of all time. He is absolutely the greatest dog of all time. And you absolutely cannot take him. He's still like the goodest of good boys and is currently a strong contender of employee of the year of the home office because he's <laughs> always in my actual office yeah. before I get to work every morning, giving me the <laughs> like, you're late, where are you? Where are my treats? Look. Yeah, um, yeah. And then last week, 
funny Harold story. He like came up to my office in the middle of the day, checking to make sure I was still working or whatever, but he was in like a ton of pain and like wincing. And it like made me like panic because I have mm-hmm. a lot of dogs and he's definitely my favorite one. So like I immediately called the emergency vet, took the rest of the day off so he could like lay on top of me because that, he's 82 pounds and that was what was making him comfortable. Um, and then we get to this emergency vet who is not my normal vet and they literally just tell me, you have a middle-aged dog who played too hard and tweaked his back. I'm like, oh. That's embarrassing. Oh, what kind of dog is Harold? I need a visual. He is a big old oaf. He's a Catapula hound dog, which is a okay. big hound dog. That's the dog of Louisiana. Oh. She wanted to know. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. Oafy. That's so funny. And so you say you, ha- you have a few dogs. So I know that. Do you have any foster fails? And did you ever plan to have as many dogs as you have now? Heck no. I did not plan to have <laughs> as many dogs as I have. For those of you <laughs> who want to know, I have four dogs. I purposely have two dogs. <laughs> Wilson, who is a pit boxer mix, and he's 10. And I got mm-hmm. him right before Hurricane Sandy. And one of our coworkers ended up having to babysit him for like two months. Oh, wow. And then I have a husky named Luna, who's almost 13, which is insane. And That's also crazy. during Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. A good dog. Hurricane Sandy, my best friend from Texas met my then fiance and met, they met halfway so she could take him and babysit him while I was up at Hurricane Sandy. <laughs> then I have Harold, the aforementioned best dog on the planet. Mm-hmm. And during COVID, before FEMA got really involved in a COVID mission, my boyfriend and I decided that we would start fostering, which I was always like, mm, that's a terrible idea because I really <laughs> can't say no to dogs. Um, but we made it through three fosters and we failed on the fourth one. There it is. And the fourth dog that we now have is currently laying under my feet. His name is Sherman and he is an absolute terror. He's a 25 pound terror. Um, <laughs> but I never have a small dog. I absolutely have a small dog now and I'm obsessed with him. And coincidentally, <laughs> he's um, Harold's emotional support dog. Like they oh are gosh. just little buddies. Mm-hmm. Pretty pathetic. So I have four with one foster. <laughs> And one dog. That's amazing. That's great. All right. Well, we could talk dogs for a while, but let's move on to something about your job because I'm super interested. So you've worked with FEMA since 2006, which is crazy. (laughs) And you're shaking your head. So you probably feel the same. (laughs) Um, And you are the region three. Where's region three? So Region 3 is located in Philadelphia, and the way FEMA is broken up, there's 10 regional offices. So Region 3 covers the Mid-Atlantic area, so Delaware, D.C., Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia. So we have six areas, six states and the district that we cover, five states in the district. Okay, cool. So you are the director of all of that, of mitigation, which is sounds really neat. So what does that mean? And did you start with FEMA or how did you get there? Yeah. So my current role is that, you know, my division mitigation, we work with the state and local partners to make sure that they understand their risk, mitigate their risk, and then ensure the risk that they can't mitigate. So we really aim to reduce the impacts of disasters, reduce and eliminate risk to people and properties from the hazards and the effects of the hazards. How I got here, my career, I think like probably many, is 
a complete fluke. Um, <laughs> I, I finished grad school right after Hurricane Katrina hit. So I finished in December of 05. And I was in school for historic preservation. So right after grad school, I started working for this small consulting firm in D.C. And at the time, the, a lot of the large contractors to FEMA were looking for additional staff and various technical expertise to go help down on the Gulf Coast. And they reached out to the firm that I worked for. And the head of the firm asked if anyone was interested in going down to the Gulf Coast for a 60-day stint. And, you know, I was, mm-hmm. I think I was 24 when I said yes. I'm like, heck yeah, I'll do this. Why not? It's yeah. Eventually, yeah. You know, I'm like, cool. And <laughs> then literally that 60 days has turned into almost 16 years now. So it's been a journey that I did not expect to take, but I'm super in love with what I do. I really like working for FEMA and the missions that we have. That's awesome. So I... Yeah, I started as a disaster assistance employee. FEMA has different types of employees. And I worked as a disaster assistance employee, which are the people that really just worked the storms at the time. And then from there, I kind of moved up to different positions. I worked at the Region 4 office as an environmental specialist and then as the deputy environmental officer. And then almost six years ago, which is I can't believe I've been in Philadelphia for six years. I applied for the deputy director of the mitigation division because I thought it was a really good opportunity to expand my skill sets and got the job. And I've been here ever since. And I love it. Nice. But you said that it was kind of a fluke. Does that mean what you went to school for was a little bit different or not what you were planning for? I went to school for historic preservation. I did my undergrad in history and international affairs. And then I was like really interested in working with buildings, but like previously I hadn't moved that direction. So I went to grad school for historic preservation, but I don't think I really knew where I was going with that profession. And then I did not know that emergency management needed people that had environmental or historic preservation Mm -hmm. backgrounds. So once I figured that out, I'm like, this is a perfect opportunity for me and it fit really well. So how's your background in historic preservation helped prepare you for this job? Sure. I think that using the technical historic preservation skills that you develop, particularly to resolve complex adverse effects uh, to historic properties, helped me develop stronger soft skills, which are transferable to lots of jobs. So working with teams to resolve adverse effects, you work solve complex problems. You have to have good time management. You have to be good at negotiating, speaking in plain language, which is why one of my favorite questions on interviews is to ask, an eight-year-old, how would you explain historic preservation to see if they can translate complex issues into simple language for people? But like consulting on the adverse effects, you also potentially work with difficult people or at least people that have competing priorities for getting the project done. You are directing a team that you don't necessarily have oversight on to meet the common goal of resolving the adverse effect to a historic property. And then you have to keep in mind that Although you have one common goal, somebody's objective is to just get through the project where another's is to preserve the historic property. So you have a lot of complexities thrown at you. And these are all skills that are transferable to whatever job that you eventually move towards. So I think my technical skills help me develop my soft skills. 
That's really cool. It really is neat how that all ties together. And I don't know. Like, so, you, you know, we met in uh, 2011, mm-hmm. the disaster in Alabama down there. And just going through that environmental review process was was so wild because it still exists. There's definitely still an environmental review process, but it's very, very different than how things normally go. So can you kind of give us an idea of how NEPA works during a disaster? And I would say that a lot of the stuff that we do to prep for environmental reviews during a disaster actually happens before a disaster. So we try to get a lot of streamlining approaches negotiated with the various resource agencies prior to an event so that when something happens, we have good relationships and processes to fall back on. Because usually right after a disaster, it is high intense, it's a little bit of chaos happening. So we want to make sure that we have our processes and protocols in place so we are able to execute what we need to do very efficiently because at the end of the day, we want to to help the survivors get back to where they were before the storm as soon as we can. So we have to have our ducks in a row to help that happen. So after we do that, before an event happens, during an event, or after an event is declared, we coordinate with all the regulatory agencies that cover the impacted areas to discuss what our priorities are, what their priorities are, any streamlined or expedited approaches that we need to do that are in addition to the ones that we've kind of pre-negotiated before the storms. And then we also want to know what their resource concerns are. So we are in tune with that as we're reviewing our as we're reviewing the FEMA project. So FEMA, from a NEPA perspective, we have a lot of statutory and categorical exclusions. They've definitely changed since I was an environmental specialist. They're more encompassing now. But these statuses and CADEXs cover a lot of the activities that we do in the immediate after effects of a storm. So it really helps to streamline the review process. And then for laws that are covered under the NEPA umbrella, like uh, the state, or excuse me, the National Historic Preservation Act or the Endangered Species Act, you know, we work with those agencies to create more expedited reviews because those are the big ones that triggered quite frequently at the beginning of a disaster. So mm-hmm. knowing that we're not the only customer of our resource agencies, we really try to limit the time that we use the expedited timeframes to when we really need them because we also know that they are extremely strapped for resources as well as well as their levels. And then so that's kind of all the processes that our environmental specialists put in place and they undertake at a disaster. But they are also really tied in with the program staff. So the various programs that get turned on for disaster, they're really closely connected with them and work together with the state and locals to develop the scopes of work so we can anticipate what type of environmental compliance concerns that we're going to have to work through or any complex issues, kind of start to identify what those projects are that might not be able to be cleared by a CADEX or STATEX under NEPA and get into the environmental assessment territory. So we want to constantly be monitoring so we can set expectations about the environmental review from the get-go. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. But important work. Yeah, is there exactly. always a disaster? Like, do you have a time when you're not like you're just planning for disasters or is there always some disaster going on? Right now, there's always events because COVID-19 nationally is federal events for us. Okay. Um, there are, you know, there are definitely times of the year that we are watching for hurricane season, spring flooding. So we're kind of always preparing for that. And then, you know, we have certain states that get events more frequently than others do just due to the terrain 
that they have within their boundaries. Okay. So how do those get declared? What's the process for that happening? So after getting declared, there's just to speak at a very high level without getting into some of the more nuanced details. So a, a disaster happens, there's some type of impact to a state, the state, tribe, or territory, they can all actually be applicants to FEMA and request direct support. But they determine the, that there was a disaster that hit their state. And then they can request a joint damage assessment from FEMA, which is a team made up of federal, state, and local partners that evaluate the damage. So the team will conduct a thorough assessment of the impacted areas, whether it be the whole state or certain counties, and they'll determine the extent of the disaster, the type, or excuse me, the impact on individuals and public facilities, and then the types of federal assistance that may be needed. So there's a variety of federal assistance options for them. The, the main ones are public assistance, which is to support or provide assistance to state, local, tribes, territories for both emergency work like debris removal and emergency protective measures, and then also permanent work, which is like repair and replacement to eligible facilities, bridges, et cetera. And then there's individual assistance, which is assistance to individuals and households. Mm -hmm. um, so examples of those that type of assistance is disaster unemployment assistance or crisis counseling, for example. And then the last big, large grant program that is part of disaster recovery would be the Hazard Mitigation Grant Program, which is grants to prevent or reduce long-term risk to life and property from natural hazards. So that's, that area is under my area of expertise, Hazard wow, Mitigation Grant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. We definitely work really well together to help the state on their joint damage assessments. And then... From there, the government, state government officials will review the damage and determine the extent of the disaster and its impact. If the governor decides that the state does not have enough resources, they're overwhelmed to respond to the disaster, then they will request certain types of assistance from the federal government. They will submit that request to the president through the FEMA regional office. So our six states would request it to the Philly office. Mm -hmm. And then the president will review that and determine whether the states and locals need that federal assistance to recover from the disaster. And the answer is yes, then a federal disaster is declared. And that is when FEMA can really start integrating with the states and locals with funding, supplies, and personnel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's just that simple. Yeah, <laughs> just a 187-step process, right? I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I love it. And it's interesting because so like there is a lot that goes into disaster recovery and it's a, almost like a whole unique economy on its own. But is it strange to be in the business of disasters, so to speak? Like, I know you're not like hoping they happen, but when you see a hurricane heading toward New Orleans, do you like go into work mode? It's like, okay, well, we got to prep for this. I don't think it's strange. And I can't, I honestly can't imagine doing anything else. I love the job and like the busyness, the types of work that we do, like we have our steady state job and then obviously we can get turned into disaster mode if we see something coming. So a lot of what FEMA does that's visible is the responding to the events and supporting our states and locals. But a lot of the work that we do is actually in support of the other parts of our mission, which is the FEMA mission is to help people before, during and after events. So 
while we know that disasters are going to happen, we do a lot of work to lessen the impact and make sure that we are prepared for when they do happen. So all year round at FEMA Region 3 and all over FEMA, we dedicate a lot of time to ensure that we are prepared to respond to disasters. So we kind of start working in our disaster roles and make sure that we're on top of any changes and things. So a lot of time is spent on developing plans, coordinating with our state and local partners to understand their resource needs if something should happen or gaps. We spend a lot of time training our staff in their collateral incident support roles, which are those roles that they fill if there's an event or disaster either pending or one that had happened. And then we also, or I, and most of us hmm. acutely track certain seasons of the year. Like I definitely, you know, when hurricane seasons, I know when hurricane season starts yeah. and I know when hurricane season ends. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but like with FEMA, if, you know, if a storm is brewing out on the Atlantic or down in the Gulf, we definitely start tracking it several days ahead of when it's anticipated to hit landfall or to make landfall. And then as it gets, Closer to when the potential landfall is, we definitely begin to ramp up our coordination and our preparation efforts with the states and locals that we have. Yeah. And I, I can't believe I didn't think of this before, but like that's the preparation before it happens. And there's the event itself and then there's the recovery process. How long does that actually take? I know it's kind of hard to do storm to storm, but it's not like over in a, in a couple of months, right? No. It depends on the size and scope of the disaster and the types of damages that they had. For our grant program, the Hazard Mitigation Grant Program, which is the one program in the mitigation division that gets turned on when there's an event, they have up to a year to apply for those grants. We want the states to be able to think strategically and determine the best types of projects to minimize impacts of disasters through use of that grant. So it definitely takes multiple years in most cases to really recover from events. And that's just from from the FEMA financial side that I'm talking about. There's obviously a lot of other impacts that communities have as well that take a long time to recover from as well. Yeah, it's a really really well said. Thank you. Like I say, there's this this, this whole large effort here. And so I think it's really important uh, that you have this great ability to be able to command a room. And I think that's just incredible. And you're really one of the strongest leaders I know. If you tell me I need to, to do something, I'm like, okay, yes, I do. I will do it right now. And, it, you know, there's just a... Can you, you teach you me really, that? I need yeah. to do what I tell him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just uh, the fear. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but, but so what advice do you have for those who are just starting leadership roles? Because you really are a good one. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's a very nice compliment. I think we worked really well together. It was super exciting to meet you the first yeah. time we worked together during the Alabama tornadoes because I'd never worked with a state where they had actually brought in or had environmental specialists on the state side. So it yeah. was, I'm glad we worked well together. Yeah, me too. Um, okay. So I was actually brainstorming some of the things. Mentoring is super important to me and I've been mentoring some people at work and I, I really love working with people. And I was thinking about, hmm, if I was just starting, what type of advice, if I could hear something would benefit me? Kind of bucketed into four different things. I think listening. Communication is a two-way street, obviously. It's important for any leader to communicate his or her vision, intent, and expectations, both effectively and efficiently. 
but it's also super important for a leader to listen. You can learn a lot from listening to anybody, whether they report to you or are a teammate that you're on, some type of working group, whatever. That you, If you listen to them, you can really learn a lot about a person and then you can understand where they're coming from and how to better communicate with them. So I think listening is super important. I also think leading by example is one of the most important things anybody could do. Like mirror the behaviors that you want to see in the people that you are working with, no matter if they, again, report to you or are above you or lateral to you. It's so important to mirror those behaviors and not expect something of a staff person that you wouldn't yourself do. Hmm. I think being honest is also very important. Being honest with yourself, evaluating how you are interacting in an activity or you're doing at your job, like that self-reflection. And then I think it's equally important to be honest when you're wrong about something. It's okay to admit that you're wrong and show that vulnerability because it's important for staff and people to see how you react to mistakes and how you recover from them. Mm. Um, The vulnerability piece really, and honesty, both build trust with whomever you're working with. So I think you know, you obviously want to have people trust you. And one way for them to trust you is to show them more about how you are as a person. And then I think the last thing is celebrating successes. So often we are moving from one big thing to the next big thing without like taking a second back and reflecting on all the cool things that we have done or all the accomplishments we either had as a team or an individual. And I think it's just so important to acknowledge that and understand how people like to have that celebration. Some people don't like the acknowledgement in front of people, other people like a written thing. Other people love to be acknowledged for their great activities. Nick Frederick. Um, (laughs) So I really... (laughs) I really think it's important to celebrate those successes and celebrate them in different manners that mean something to the people that you are celebrating or the activities that you're celebrating. That is such a great answer. I mean, damn. (laughs) That's That's it. She covered it. If you want to be a good leader, there's your five minutes of to do's. Yeah. Get to it. I love that. Yeah. You know, being vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, celebrating successes is really important too. Yeah. It's really, really great. Great answer. Thank you. Yeah. So that's all awesome. We're ready to be good leaders, but now let's think of the technical side. So there's the GIS component to a lot of what FEMA does. So how can someone in GIS, what kind of skills do they need and what kind of projects do you work on in FEMA with GIS? Yeah, so we already talked about how technology in April has already set sail for me. So there's a lot of smart people that can do, <laughs> that can do, do GIS and can that are really great at it in our office. So the, just overall, in most of the countries, floodplain maps are actually did, all digital. So meaning they consist of the GIS data layers that can be viewed by the public on a national viewer. And if you're interested, that national viewer is the National Flood Hazard Layer. And Region 3 last year became the first region to actually have complete digital maps for all of our flood insurance rate maps. So I'm super excited about the team talking about uh, things to accomplish and to celebrate. That is one. And then when there's a disaster event, data is collected after the disaster on the event, including stream height, high water marks, damage data, et cetera. And then FEMA compares this data with the floodplain that's 
currently mapped. And if there's significant flooding that occurred outside of the actual floodplain, we could trigger a remapping study, which we would remap those streams or that area to see if there should be changes in the floodplain. We do a lot of, a lot of what we do is GIS driven. And I think the most important thing is it's one thing to have GIS layers and data. It's another thing to be able to tell the story with that information. So we're working really hard on making sure we can actually tell the story of what the data is telling us because so many times you can just see something on a map, but it doesn't necessarily translate. So helping to make sure that those stories translate to um, meaningful decisions at whatever level of decision-making is happening. So the locals using it, the state using it, and then us using it to drive where we're moving missions. Yeah, yeah, which is really, really neat stuff. And it's really cool, like you say, that there are the other folks who are very good at technology. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so you don't have to be. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, you kind of mentioned uh, earlier, too, about COVID-19 and FEMA's help supporting that effort, which I don't know if a lot of people know. But you also, you were so do, working on that effort, you almost met Barack Obama, but you were taken off assignment the week before he was going to show up. <laughs> like, what happened there? Whose kneecaps do we need to take out? Seriously, like, what the hell? Okay, so it actually makes me laugh that I missed Barack Obama. But before I get into that, let me just talk about at least the FEMA's mission in the COVID vaccine mission this spring. So I was actually supporting a few vaccination centers. The goal of the vaccination centers were to provide equitable access to the vaccination and to provide a number of vaccines a day. So at the, the last site I was at was at the Greenbelt Community Vaccination Center. And our goal was to vaccinate up to 3,000 people a day. So I'm not going to lie. I've worked with FEMA for a long time, as we already just discussed earlier in this podcast. Mm -hmm. But I can say this is literally the best, one of the best missions I've ever been a part of, if not the absolute best mission I've been a part of. So the mission really required a whole government approach. We had support from the state Department of Health, the State Emergency Management Agency. All different federal partners were coming to support us. We had National Park Service, the Navy, Army, and the Air Force other components within the Department of Homeland Security umbrella that we work in. And then we had local partners with a medical facility at Greenbelt. So in my normal day-to-day job as a mitigation director, you know, the project that we undertake takes years to see to fruition. But like at the vaccine site, it was instant gratification. A person walked in, in our case, they walked into the vaccination site, their registration was confirmed, they were vaccinated, and then they sat in observation for a limited amount of time, and then they walked back to whatever mode of transportation they came there on, and that took all of 30 minutes. So you literally saw the end result of what you were doing in 30 minutes instead of like three or four years. So it was amazing. (laughs) So great. (laughs) We also had, you know, you got to see people. Some people were super anxious coming in because they hadn't been around that many people in a year. Uh, Other people were super excited to come in and get shot and couldn't wait to like plan their next trip or go hang out with friends they hadn't seen in a year. So we wanted to start capturing reasons why people were coming into the vaccination center. And uh, we had great external affairs team there and they like created a little flyer handout that people could 
it said why I got my COVID-19 vaccination today. And then people could write whatever answer that they wanted to put. And I'm not going to lie. It was like a tearjerker <laughs> wall. It was like a happy yeah. tearjerker wall. Yeah. You needed to see why we were there. Just go to that wall and you'll just feel great about what you're doing. I mean, like, I'm not going to lie. My favorite sign, and I still remember this, was why did I get my COVID-19 vaccination? And they said, because I needed something to do today. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's all right. That's yeah. cool. A lot of people, because they were getting married, a lot of people were saying it because they were doing it because they cared about their community. And it was just awesome to see this stuff. So that was a great mission. The site that I was at, Greenbelt, was really close to Washington, D.C. It was on the metro line because we wanted to make sure that people that didn't have access to cars could get to the vaccination site. So it was right on the metro line. We had like paratransit there. So we really wanted the site to be super accessible to everybody. And I was part of the planning from the pretty much from the beginning. And I had a deputy site manager that I had never worked with before. And so to get to know him a little better, <laughs> I'd ask him some random icebreaker questions each day. Yeah. And the icebreakers literally sparked joy in my soul because he was just like, oh, you're asking me another question. But it was like super important to get to know him better so we could work better together. So one of the questions that I asked him was if a VIP came to this site, which VIP would like immediately make you be, I need to be here. I need to see this. And I don't, I honestly don't remember what his answer is, but I, I wrote it down somewhere and I still have that. Um, but my answer was the second gentleman because I just loved his little tours that he was doing at the time. So I left the site and my deputy site manager took over for me. And so texted me immediately as soon as he could and sent a picture of Obama at the site. And I was like, and he followed wow. it up though. He's like, if it had been the second gentleman in April, I would have done everything in my power to get you here. So he knew, <laughs> he knew that Obama oh. wasn't that person. But I was like super excited for the team and for Dave, my deputy, to meet him. You know, they they just did so much work and they were so involved in the mission. It was it was an honor for all of them, and I'm super happy that they were all able to meet him. So no kneecaps, we're good. That's awesome. Near <laughs> <laughs> misses. I know, I know. I'm jealous for you. So Nick has told me a lot about the work that you guys have done together and also has shared some funny and interesting stories with me, but we like to share them on the show as well. So do you have any crazy stories you'd like to share with us? Gosh, I was like thinking about this and I don't know, hitting 40 is also making me forget stuff. Um, <laughs> it is, totally is. I have the same problem. Oh. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's not really crazy, but when you're working events, you know, you're most likely away from home. You're working long hours and you are, you know, it's a little stressful. It can be stressful. And so you kind of become family with the people you're working with and you create friends from all over, all over the U.S. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the best things about the job. Obviously, Nick and I are friends from when we met in 2011. Yeah. I mean, no, never would have met him otherwise. Yeah, But sure. I'm very my very first disaster, which was Hurricane Katrina, I met my best friend and we still travel all over the world and all over together. But it's kind of funny how we met because I was working, as I mentioned earlier, at a consulting firm in DC and I worked with this woman named Krista 
And I kept hearing her on the phone with this woman because she was talking about how her friend's dog had just got hit by a car. Well, the dog was fine. And I was like, that, like, obviously I'm a dog lover. So it's like, you know, hurting my little heart, but Mm. the dog was fine. And then fast forward, as I mentioned, our company got asked if we had anybody that could go support in historic preservation roles. So I jumped at the chance and Krista turned to me and she's like, my best friend works down there at that office. Do you want her number? And again, 24 year old April is like, I'm sure. not going to meet her. I don't need her number. Right, right. I literally, I literally sat in the desk right behind her. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had this, I was like, there's 800 people up there. I was never going to meet her. I absolutely met her in the first five minutes I was at the field office. And, <laughs> but I didn't know her name. I heard her talking about her dog. I'm like, are you the woman that has a husky? She's like, are you the <laughs> one from D.C.? And we literally became best friends since then and have taken some like wild trips around the world and throughout the U.S. and I would not have it any other way. Like working for FEMA has changed my life in so many ways, professionally, obviously, but personally, I've met so many great friends and it's awesome. That is so great. I love a good friend story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, (laughs) So we we are um, almost out of time, but is there anything else you want to share before we let you get out of here? I would be remiss if I didn't say where it rains, it can flood. So everybody should look into flood insurance. It's a really important way to protect your property in the event that something happens in your community. And I just want to thank you guys for having me. It was a lot of fun. And uh, that's our show. Thank you, April, so much for joining us today. It was so cool to have you on Talking FEMA. It's a lot goes into that. So it was really, really great to hear your perspective. Thank you. Thank you. And for all the rest of you, please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. See you, everybody.